Europe has regulations, but at least they're clear. And you know under what conditions you can roll out. We don't have franchises. We don't have monopolies locally, etc. Actually, we have rules to prevent monopolies. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today, I'm speaking with someone I've been following for, for many years, uh, Rudolf Vanderberg, who is a partner at Stratix Consulting. Uh, welcome to the show, Rudolf. Thank you. Been listening for years, too. Fun. Uh, I appreciate that. You you have a, a wonderful presence on social media, commenting on all things internet and particularly uh, Europe-related. And in the Netherlands, uh, you've had uh, a lot of insights. Uh, you're deeply involved. I think you, you're involved in setting up the Amsterdam IX, right? Oh, no, no, no. No. no that, that, uh, I helped establish the Dutch-German Internet Exchange, which is okay. in the east of the Netherlands, which was a project from my university, 20 University. We got broadband there in 1994. 10 megabits to each two dorm room, 100 megabit in 1998. So we had more bandwidth than almost anybody <laughs> in the world. And then this guy starts this hotel booking website, becomes a bit popular and realizes that across the road from campus, internet data is 10,000 guilders per two megabit, let's say 5K dollars per two megabit. Whereas on campus, of course, he was paying 10 euro for 100. <laughs> and in Amsterdam, it was 2K for two Mbit, so it was easy for him. And he left with his firm booking.com for Amsterdam. Yes, and which when I was... the university didn't really like, of course. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in Amsterdam, I actually used booking.com. <laughs> well, it's it's massive. Um, Just Eat also started at the university, but slightly a bit later. And by that time, the internet exchange had helped bring prices down well, basically to Amsterdam levels. And it still exists. It's much more of a regional and municipal thing. It has two and a half thousand firms and governments connected to it. And they do, you know, local interconnection, the municipalities work together over that network, etc. So it's still a stunning success. Yes. And when I think of when I think of you, though, the, one of the first things that pops into my head is statistics that I've seen from you about uh, Amsterdam's Internet Exchange and how it's changed over the years and the volume of traffic and the value of IXs and things like that. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that wasn't really recognized by a lot of people also in public policy, because, you know, I have a background in public administration, public policy just had a lot of the wrong friends in university. So um, <laughs> they managed the campus network and needed the guy to do policy. And that's where I came in. And then after the internet exchange, I went to work for the Ministry of Economic Affairs. In 2006, I wrote a paper for the OECD on the future of fiber networks. And I was very much involved with broadband and how we should get it everywhere. And also with how internet exchanges worked and how that affected net neutrality and how you could build efficient networks. And it's now 2023, and I'm still doing that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, basically my career now. And you're someone who uh, worked at the OECD in tracking U.S.-based networks. So as we're talking about this, you definitely have a sense of similarities and differences. Uh, I did yeah. want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about uh, the state of fiber in uh, the Netherlands and then more largely in, in Europe. Well, we, we started building out the first fiber networks like in 2002, 2003, but First, it ramped up quite nicely, but KPN, our local incumbent, got involved in a joint venture that was really building out fast. 
that basically stalled the rollout by almost 10 years. And so but, when you say KPM, people should hear AT&T, basically. Yes. Basically, that's Dutch Telecom, Royal Dutch Telecom, PTT, traditional. I like them in, in some ways there that the incumbent who does the right thing after it has exhausted all other options, but at least it generally does the right thing. So, you know, for a while it was very focused on VDSL and then realized that it lost the war to our version of Comcast, which is for the phone Ziggo. Cable in the Netherlands has 98% coverage because municipalities build it and uh, public housing corporations were involved in rollout of cable TV. They didn't like the nasty antennas on people's roofs. So everybody has cable, except in the more rural areas. And but at 98%, so a, it's really the most rural areas. <laughs> yeah. And rural, of course, in the Netherlands is not completely like rural in the US. But um, you know, we're a small country, only 200 miles by 100 uh, miles. So it, it's not that big. Uh, 18 million people, so quite densely populated. But because... We have a strong competition between cable and DSL and fiber. It became very clear that people prefer cable over DSL. And in areas where KPM doesn't have fiber, it has 35% market share, sometimes less. And cable is 66% or something. In areas where there's fiber, it's 50-50 or more towards fiber. And of course, DSL is dead. And... Well, in some areas where the municipality ran, still ran the cable company, like where my parents live, way up north in Friesland, near the Friesian cows, the local municipalities ran the cable firm and decided, well, we'll just do FTTH. And there they have like 90% market share for the local FTTH, which is, uh, which is fun. So at this moment, um, 5 million people have FTTH homes passed. There's 3 million homes to go. And there's roughly funding for 4 million homes. Well, that so works are... out pretty well. <laughs> yep. So there are three major firms rolling out. KPM, Open Dutch Fiber, which says it's op- running an open network, which is a private equity together with the pension fund of Deutsche Telekom. Mm-hmm. And um, they roll out quite fast as well. And then there's Delta, which used to be a cable company in one province, the province of Zeeland, which is like all islands connected together. And they weren't that interested basically at first in FTTH. But this was a private equity fund who had bought an ailing cable network from the the province, the state. They then got involved in Dutch cable and fired to the home and realized, now, wait a minute, there's money to be made here. And um, they bought another cable firm basically who had gone FTTH. And so the returns these guys were making, because, well, 70, 80% market share was quite well possible if you did it well. They started to move further. And then it got more interesting because there was also this fiber to the farm project, which you also mentioned in, in the other pro- podcast, and I think it triggered on it. My firm was involved as well. We tried to get fiber to the farm, but that was like two and a half, three thousand, five thousand euro extra per farm. And, you know, how do you get that financed? But it turns out that most farms are, of course, businesses and people living outside of towns often had a business of their own. And these businesses were like, but I need fiber because I have 200 kilobits of DSL or even less. I can't run a milk robot 
like that or whatever I need to run my farm. What do you mean 5K or 3K or whatever? I'll pay you from my investment money deducted from my taxes. Mm -hmm. And you better hurry. So they had made this entire business case. My firm was involved with the bank, the local um, cooperative Rabobank, which does a lot of the farms. They had secured the funding and loans, you know, convinced everybody. And then it turned out 80, 90% of the people paid that three to 5,000 euro up front instead of over 10 years, like everybody expected. And so the only one who was upset was the bank manager <laughs> because he'd gone through all that effort securing the loan <laughs> and his people paid the loan off in the first month. Sure. Thank you. We don't need your money anymore. Right. That's funny. And well, private equity funds being what they are, they were like, now, wait a minute, we can pull that trick in other places. Sure. And then they started. And well, there was even one prophet who, the, the same cable firm that helps my parents, uh, that serves my parents, was tasked with doing rural areas, which were supposed to be too expensive. But when the private equity guys realized what kind of money there was, all of a sudden, a lot of rural areas became profitable. So these guys had looked at the most profitable rural areas where they could start for the province with subsidies, only to find that what, when they basically wanted to start, that the um, Delta people were going like, but we want to roll out. The province, of course, was like, okay, well, that saves a lot of money. Sure. But this local firm owned by the municipalities was like, yeah, but we just put it all that money into engineering, et cetera, you know, in designing. But, you know, that province is doing really well and is now doing the last 600 really expensive farms, which is uh, going quite well. So, so we really have a good situation at the moment with lots of fiber rolling out. It does sound like the the market dynamic is leading to a lot of investment. And I, I'm curious about that. Um, a kind of um, the business case seems so good. Uh, I'm kind of surprised because one of the things we take for granted here <laughs> is that Europe is so overregulated that it's hard to have a business case. And it seems surprising to me that there is such a good business case there and that there isn't a concern about the level of regulation um, making the investment more risky or something like that. Yeah, that's complete nonsense. Europe has regulations, but at least they're clear. And you know under what conditions you can roll out. We don't have franchises. We don't have monopolies locally, etc. Actually, we have rules to prevent monopolies. Each country is different, but in my country, in the Netherlands, if you want to roll out a network, you don't need a permit per se. The government has to allow you. They can charge you certain fees for the work they need to do. They can charge you for repaving and similar things. But even private landowners can't block you from rolling out a public network. So fundamentally, you have to allow somebody to roll out a network. I also um, am program manager for the Dutch Association of Municipalities. One of the things we actually now do is information sharing between municipalities and how you keep everything orderly and nice so that, you know, when repaving is done, it's done correctly. So one of the tricks we tell people is, because it's such a massive project, you get almost too much money for it as a municipality because it's too many meters and normally you pay by the meter or something like that. You can tell the telco that he can get some of the money back 
as a discount so that he can reach more homes and it becomes better to reach certain rural homes, but only after that the project has finished under so, the condition that it's done correctly and according to spec and the repaving is done correctly. In effect, a municipality might set its rates based on an assumption as, uh, of someone extending, doing some modest line extensions. But if it's looking at a very significant investment at that point, the costs are, are large enough that the city could forego some of those in return for uh, public policy goals and making sure there's good restoration and all that. Yep. And, you know, this is the biggest rollout of infrastructure in our country since the rollout of uh, natural gas network and certainly in the amount of lines in the amount of time it's massive and there's really a gold rush so they're fighting the telcos are now suing each other and the municipalities over well i got there first so you can't let them but the rules say that in base the principle everybody can roll out and you can't as a municipality block one in favor of the other you can say, well, there needs to be some digging rest, as we call it, for a certain amount of time. You know, if you have one guy digging up the city center one week and the other guy comes the next month, yeah, citizens won't be happy. I assume that there's a lot of joint trench requirements too. Uh, do you see that frequently? Oh, municipalities try to get them to jointly trench. Telcos hate that. Yes, they don't that's want what to I've cooperate. Seen. Yeah. And to be so, fair, it is difficult to cooperate, and from what I can tell, yes, no, maybe, <laughs> but yeah, the, at this moment they want to roll out so fast, and they don't want to be impeded by the by the next guy that they prefer to roll out themselves. You speak of this, and I do feel like I'm not going to come back to this over and over again. But the conventional wisdom in the United States is that if there are open requirements on a physical network, which I believe you, um, does the Netherlands require open access to other providers? You don't. No, not anymore. We used okay. to have that for KPN or incumbent telco. KPN still has a voluntary open provision because it actually sells a lot through other telcos as well. Open Dutch Fiber says it has an open offer. Delta was closed because, well, it used to be an, a cable company, basically, but it recently announced that it would allow like five or 10 other operators. And they all also go like, well, if the other guy opens up, then I will open up to him as well. And they all say, well, it should be better if we just roll out once, but then actually cooperating is a bit hard. But yeah, they, they do cooperate sometimes. And it also depends on the country. Because well, in the Netherlands, if it's funded with public money, like some rural parts, um, there is generally a requirement for openness, but those are not that many places. At 60, uh, KPN currently charges like 18 to 23 euro per line for open access, and then another 1 euro 23 for 6 megabits of traffic, and then a whole bunch of other costs, of course, here and there for access to POPs and, and stuff. Average Price between 50 and 70 euro a month for the full broadband package with TV. And, you know, that's a gigabit between 200 megabits and a gigabit. And some early trials with 10 gig XTS POM. When you're quoting those prices, those seem um, 
a bit higher than what I've heard elsewhere um, for like, for instance, obviously I think free in France and I, my information could be out of date was much lower, but I think their speeds were often a lot lower than advertised. Is that, is that right? What is the difference between being on a Euro, on a on a fiber network in the Netherlands, um, like the Delta on Delta, versus being on a, a fiber network elsewhere in Europe? Is it pretty similar? And, uh, the fiber networks are generally quite similar. It really depends on the country. So some countries are really advanced. Sweden, Norway, Denmark have done really well with fiber. Finland a bit less. Does a lot more mobile, also fixed wireless access, but they do use fifty gigs per SIM card per month. So, you know, they really rank in the top. Um, France was really a lot of DSL, but has put in a 10-year plan by the government in 2012 to bring fiber to all rural areas, in part because they've been really late with telephony, rolling it out. So they had the longest loop length of anywhere in Europe which was no problem until somebody invented DSL. Right. And then they were like mad. Well, that I <laughs> talked with a, with a French regulator, oh, it must have been more than 10 years ago, and I was speaking with them, and I said, what about the most rural parts of France? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, we're not, we're not even thinking about that. <laughs> just, well, they were just writing it off at that point. Now they all have fiber. They had a 10-year plan, which will be done next year. And basically all rural areas should be done roughly almost by then. And it's really a massive train that goes through the country. I heard it from one guy who had a holiday home in a village of 300 people somewhere. And he said, well, one day a, a crew shows up and at the end of the week, all of a sudden we all had fiber and it worked. <laughs> and then the crew is gone. And um, prices in France are 35 to 45 euro these days. And then you get anywhere up to 10 gig. So that's, that's, that's maybe maybe my information is quite dated, but I had thought that one of the ways that free had kept their costs so low was that they ran their exchange points pretty congested. That, that That's not necessarily the thing. They were a bit dumb with their interconnection, like most French operators. France was the country that had more internet exchange points in Paris than any other European uh, country had in its capital. <laughs> Everybody started their own internet exchange point instead of cooperating. Okay. It wasn't until France IX started with some people that have grown to know. Yeah, those were basically none of the incumbent French telcos. They have like four or five incumbent telcos. And yeah, they still have difficulties with interconnection. But on the other hand, they do have enough bandwidth, way more than enough bandwidth on their networks. Yeah, you can actually reach that eight gigabit if you want to. And um, the French operators do have to post what your real world speed will be as well. That's remarkable. Yeah. In the United States, we're told that's impossible to know. And you couldn't possibly public post it publicly. <laughs> but on, on DSL, it was horrible. I lived yeah. in Paris, yeah. but I lived on the seventh floor. And well, my DSL would be anywhere between 15 and 75 megabits. And sometimes it needed to reboot from the DSL modem to retrain it to anything that worked. Sure. So France actually now has, has a problem, uh, the medium-sized cities, because that's left to the incumbent firms, mm -hmm. and they weren't as fast as the government, in part also because the government basically had all the construction crews working to do all the rural areas. But yeah, 
So the joke in France is now that the major cities have FTTH, the rural areas have FTTH, but if you live in a middle sized, then um, your mileage may vary. Yeah. Other countries in Europe, Spain, 80, 90% fiber, massive work. Um, Italy tries, but can't really get it going. Greece, really hard. Eastern Europe, very far generally with, with fiber and other networks. Um, Belgium, hardly any fiber, but uh, 98% cable, so not too bad. And then Germany, a bit of a developing nation when it comes to uh, fiber and mobile broadband and stuff. If you drive out of a major German city, your Spotify majors quit. No coverage. Mm -hmm. If you're outside of town in a a German uh, city or town, you may not have broadband. And, uh, you know, through the years I've spoken to firms with four or 500 people, employees who have a location outside of town and difficulty getting fiber there. Wow. And you just go like, come on. But even in Germany, it's now moving. Deutsche Telekom is really proud that they now had 2 million FTTH connections new this year. But almost every city, major city, had its own local government-owned network. They did a lot of fiber. So those areas. And then some Dutch people who started the same network in the Netherlands and went to Germany and started Deutsche Glasfaser, which was quite successful because Deutsche Telekom ignored them for a while. And they were bought by KKR, private equity. And uh, yeah, there's quite a bit of money flowing into that as well. Mm -hmm. But Germany is the stalwart. So one of the things that um, that is, is pretty clear is that to speak of Europe is is uh, is not helpful in this space. No, not not just like it's difficult to speak of the United States. It can differ between neighborhoods. Well, in in Europe, it's generally it can differ between countries. It's not like really local, but yeah, between countries, there's huge differences. Nonetheless. One of the things that uh, continues to be repeated, despite having been uh, frequently debunked in the tech press and and elsewhere, is a claim that uh, European networks really struggled during the COVID-19 lockdowns. Um, And that's one assertion. And then the second one is that that was a problem that's caused by burdensome network neutrality rules. So if we attack that first, um, across European networks, were there any that really struggled during the COVID-19 lockdowns? Uh, no. Yes, maybe in some places, like some parts of Italy, people were complaining, but that was basically because they had DSL and it was already rubbish before COVID. This was weirdly enough, Commissioner Breton, ex-Orange CEO, who is very enamored by some anti-net neutrality ideas. He was the guy who called for this. The only one who seemed to have had a bit of a problem was Deutsche Telekom, but that's a very specific thing to them. They weren't even able to give German university students video conferencing. And whereas every other European uh, German ISP would set up private network interconnects and, you know, 100 gig or something to connect, and the German universities had over one terabit of connectivity. Deutsche Telekom was the one who had 20% packet loss. And only when the German universities decided to pay and cave in and buy transit from Deutsche Telekom, which they didn't need and which was more expensive than their normal transit, that's when bits started to flow. And, you know, that was like 100 gig. 
So it's not like that was real traffic or anything. It was just, you know, it's the biggest incumbent. It's the AT&T and all the students are at home. But they had packet loss in their interconnect, not on their network, but in their interconnect. In, uh, in the rest, our biggest problem in the Netherlands was not students who needed to go to McDonald's. We didn't have that issue at all. It was larger families, two, three, four kids, particularly poorer ones who didn't have a laptop at home or enough laptops. So that was actually a policy thing for many municipalities. Where do we get the laptops for some of the kids? Well, that was fixed with a subsidy here and there. But traffic just wasn't an issue. Never was. And so to be to be clear, because you make the comment mm-hmm. about McDonald's, um, the, the juxtaposition is that the from your point of view, the Netherlands policy was vastly superior to that of the United States, where particularly people who have made this claim, Senator Thune uh, among them, uh, prefer to see no government intervention. And um, and it seems that uh, having an appropriate level of government intervention has led to the Netherlands being well suited to being able to handle that uh, that challenge. Yeah, and, and and so most European countries, and we have competitive competition, so our our rates are lower, so it's easier for families to actually afford it. You know, Germany is the most expensive country, I think, in in Europe for broadband pricing, and even there, it's like eighty, ninety euro. So you know, that's a hundred dollars r- roughly, but and that includes VAT and local taxes and stuff because in most of Europe, you're not allowed to sell anything without VAT added and all taxes included. So it's not like the magic bill you guys <laughs> get in the United States where it says one thing on the sticker and a whole different thing at the end of the month. Nonetheless, there there is obviously tremendous progress in um, in many European nations to getting close to that 100% uh, build out um, of, of high quality access, if not fiber in, in some cases. Um, and yet... Uh, there is this discussion, uh, which seems to come up from time to time, that the tech companies need to pay the telecom companies to improve and and to build these new networks. Where where are these claims coming from? Before we actually deal with any of the any of the merit to them. Um, well, the usual suspects: Telefonica, Deutsche Telekom, Orange, and Vodafone. Well, in this case, they found Thierry Breton, um, the former CEO of Orange a willing spokesperson. We've had these claims, well, basically ever since 1996, I found OECD documents where people were claiming this. Um, The same head of regulatory of Deutsche Telekom said this thing in 2001 at an OECD meeting. In uh, in 2006, we had the TSMA. In 2011, the same firms did an ITU proposal and I organized the Beric OECD meetings on IP interconnection, where I brought the peering managers of Europe together with the regulators for basically the first time AFCC was there as well. And it was like, oh, wait, this works completely different than our incumbent telco told us. Yes. And it's a bit weird because basically it's only these firms who really are difficult to interconnect with and peer with. Most other countries have very well-running internet exchange points where lots of the local ISPs and non-incumbents happily interconnect. Even some incumbents like British Telecom is very good at interconnecting. Has all net caches for everything, peers with everybody. 
it's a very big difference sometimes also between the techie people and the people doing marketing and regulatory affairs. It's it, it's magic. Well, you might you one might assume uh, if if one was a sort of economic uh, uh, an academic in economics who had no understanding of how this, you might assume that the companies that were most desiring to have tech companies paying for the upgrades would probably be the smaller companies who are more capital constrained. But it sounds like you're saying it's the it's the companies that have the most access to capital who are crying about wanting others to invest in their networks for them. Yes. And um, those are the dominant firms who sometimes, like Telefonica, have ruled that 80-90% of the country with FTTH already, or like Orange, who publicly says, well, you know, we have reduced our capex because well, we're basically done. Sure. So this is just a cash grab. It's not even they're not even really trying to do anything. Well, for Deutsche Telekom, at least you can say, well, you, they still need to upgrade because they were like, they started basically two years ago, and they have the largest country in Europe to go. So yes, they were late and on the wrong market circumstances. But many of them started when cash was cheap. So um. And also traffic-wise, you know, there's no reason for, for it. Uh, it was well-researched by Bavik the previous time. Traffic doesn't cost that much. Weirdly enough, you say economists. Well, economists are actually part of the problem here. I say that frequently, actually. <laughs> <laughs> because economists generally don't understand anything of networking or telecommunications or what traffic costs. And so you see the wildest claims, like, well, we need to build these networks because traffic is exponentially growing. Yes, well, everything is exponentially growing, even my belly at some times. But, you know, what's the exponent? It has it used to be like maybe 50%, but these days we're talking about 20% traffic growth. That's even what Deutsche Telekom says. Mm -hmm. Even Deutsche Telekom tells the regulator we didn't have any trouble with traffic during COVID. And so 20% traffic growth. And the nice thing is that Dutch KPN did a wholesale offer. So it also mentioned how much traffic you would get for that. And it was like, well, average traffic is now 3.87 megabits per connection. And we give you 21% growth. So we'll just make that five so that there's a bit of space and fine. So now as of 1st of January at six megabits, there you go which is still madness that you actually need to pay for it because it doesn't feature in their own business case, of course, because they rolled, roll out FTTH to 10 gigabit XGS pod. So really, it's not the traffic. Mm -hmm. We have weird situations like, you know, the head of Fr France Telecom uh, Orange's broadband going like, well, you know, all that traffic, we can't handle it. And then you make a simple calculation of how much traffic he does with, you know, the, the customers that he has. There's 30 million households in France, um, 6 million, so that uh, that would be like 180 terabit. Officially, they do like 40 terabit of interconnection, according to the regulator. And this man is promoting on an, in a Nokia website a router that does 230 terabit of capacity. So basically, he's promoting one router that could handle the entire country of France, all internet traffic through a single box, which of course you wouldn't build and design like that. Right. By 16 of those, put them in four locations and then four by four or, or two, two by two redundancy. 
for a country like France, you should be able to handle a bit of traffic here and there. Well, and I one of the things that I enjoyed in uh, your interview, I was looking up, it's uh, Internet Lab by Information Labs, which I'm enjoying catching up on some of their back episodes. I hadn't heard that podcast before, um, uh, is that um, a lot of the traffic, the the top traffic uh, tra- trafficker, I guess, in many of these countries is not Google. It's not Facebook. It's not the big tech companies. Um, what what is it? What you were pointing out is, uh, I think, in what caught my eye was in Italy. It was uh, like uh, Juventus and other uh, City A teams, right? It's football, and, and you know the proper football that you play with a foot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what we call is, soccer, which yeah. had been called, uh, I believe, association football, back in the day. So, football in several countries like Spain and Italy is now exclusive to over the top internet, and People use it massively. And so the internet exchange points are reporting peak after peak because of sports. In my country, it's Formula One racing. And um, world champion is Dutch and everybody watches it. And that causes actual traffic peaks on networks. We're talking for a company like KPN. I made a quick calculation. It was like something like two and a half terabit for four million customers. So that's like 600 kilobits. And there was this, there's this really nice small Dutch cable company, SKV Veendam. They have like 11,000 customers. They have everybody, they have 93% market share or something like that. So they are a really good example. And they publish their data statistics. It's just available on their website. You can just go there now and see it live. It's potato country. There's nothing there other than, you know, normal people. They do 33, 37 gigabits when there's a Formula One at 9 p.m. at night. So peak on peak on peak. Normal traffic, 26, 27 gigabits. Of course, they, they, they still have TV on a separate wavelength. So they still do normal cable TV. So that's a bit less, but, you know, mm-hmm. if you do IP TV on top, 5, 6, you should be fine. And that's just actual normal use. So, yeah, Netflix is a load. But at this moment, it's sports that you need to design for. And even then, there's this Dutch, smaller Dutch ISP who was like, oh, we F1. That's all coming from AWS and, and some other things. So let's call the nice people at AWS and see if we can get an interconnect uh, upgrade because at this moment it's two times 10. So it was like, can we get four times 10? Response was no, 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 no. We don't do 10 anymore at AWS. You can get two times 100. (laughs) And I was peering, it didn't cost either party anything. So they said, well, the rest of my customers didn't mind either that I have two times 100, you know, his business customers, et cetera. It's not like he really was peaking that high, but oh well. Yeah, he can I mean, handle a, a bit of growth for the coming years. And so I, the answer is, this isn't a problem when you build the right infrastructure. Uh, and and not only that, and people, the people behind the scenes, the technical people, are doing the right work of working out the peering arrangements correctly. There's just not a problem, and there's not one on the horizon. Exactly, even the people from SKV Vendom don't even bother with peering because they have two times forty gigabits. So they do 33 now peak. And they were like, yeah, but if we go 
internet exchange and peering does actually work. So we just bought transit and the costs of it, even with what KPN would charge, like it's one euro 20 for the six megabits that they charge their ISPs. If you take that into a business case and you make 45 to 55 euro a month from a household, it's just not worth it. And of course, reality is the Netherlands has the lowest prices for transit in Europe, basically, because we're very well interconnected. It's four cents per megabit or something, if you do it in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And that's transit. So you hope to peer like 70%, 80%. It's just not a problem. Except if you need traffic to Deutsche Telekom, because that's 80 cents per megabit. Those are the weird ones. Those are the problem, actually. This whole idea that we need payment from content providers is madness. And BT actually provided a lot of the statistics that they use to show that it's madness because traffic growth wasn't that much, not even during COVID. It was more during the day. Right. It was a, it was a different peak, right? I mean, it was often not even as high as the evening peak, but it was just... It was more stretched out over the day. Right. So more bites during the day. The evening peak was a lot more. And the, in the years after, the evening peak didn't grow as fast. Even our incumbent telcos don't really know how to lie about it sometimes. And they write a blog post, Deutsche Telekom did, like, yes, YouTube is 350 terabyte per day on our mobile network. That's unsustainable. But they have 53 million SIM cards. So that's like 7 megabyte per SIM card per day. <laughs> So I joked that that would be only unsustainable if they actually used five floppy disks to send it to their customers. <laughs> and that's also the madness of this whole debate. Why are we having this debate? There just is no logic behind it. There's a bunch of academic papers that make all kinds of wild claims, but no real hard data. They had a consultant report that said they, the OTTs needed to pay like 30 billion a year. 3035. And then the French Telecom Federation came with a number of, for France alone, it was 2 billion a year. And then one day I was like, now wait a minute, how much is that per household? It turns out that the French say it's 5 euro per household per month, but the European Association says it's 15 euro mm -hmm. per household per month for all of Europe. So, so, so how are these French guys doing it at a third of the price? Right as all the other ones. Right. They just made up the wrong number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, there's just no logic in, in, in proportion behind it. And yeah. And that makes it even more sad for those areas that don't get fiber yet because a lot of time and effort is wasted. There are a lot of possibilities because we can now do more state aid. It's, you know, the basic rate is now 100 megabits symmetrical, basically, that you need to get everywhere. The Netherlands has gone for a gigabit. We're trying to get the last 20,000 really difficult locations on a gigabit. That's the kind of stuff that we're working on in Europe. That should be possible. Yeah, that's a good place to wrap it up. Um, where where you're heading in the future, um, I'm I'm a bit jealous, and uh, I'm glad that uh, that you're out there doing this. And hopefully someday we will learn something from your work. <laughs> so, thank you for your time today, and thank you for for all your work over the years, and, and a wonderful social media presence, uh, sharing uh, these different uh, observations over the course of the day. 
Awesome. Thank you. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.